five, four, three, two, one, go. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. You're maturing beautifully with age. I think you're genuinely week on week like more handsome. Me, moldy cheese is what it is. <laughs> yeah. You don't see the cheese anymore. You just see the beautiful blue hair. So yes, yes, absolutely. I'll go with that. It's fair. Thank you. <laughs> Before we get sidetracked by everything, I've got to say this because it's too bloody exciting. Last night, rewatched The Martian. Don't know when you last watched that. Ridley Scott. A while ago. It's a film that's older than you realise, right? In terms of, you know, how long it's been about. Well, either that or time is escaping us, which is probably also true. But you mentioned the other day when we were doing a Spidey chat, how amazing it was that the best cameo of all was Football is Life Man from Ted Lasso. (laughs) I think I've got an equal cameo, which is extraordinary, which is (laughs) the early days of... um, them discovering and being able to make communication with Damon, uh, who's in it as one of the techs with a thick American accent, but the same attitude. Nate the bloody great, isn't it? Nate the great. Really? Is That's the amazing. And wow, what Nick a career. Mohammed is his name, Nick Mohammed. And uh, yeah, yes. He's really yes. got the same mannerisms and ticks, and he gets frustrated at his peers for not like. He's just American. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow, typecast, but I like it. Yeah, and he hasn't aged the day. Like, it's weird. Either way, it's (laughs) weird. Yes. Um, Oh, that's nice, though. Oh, good for him. He was on, unsurprisingly, a a Goldstein pod that I listened to at some point. I'm going backwards, of course, which is interesting. But also, well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah, he does. He does. I remember there was something that annoyed me, but it wasn't anything negative. It was just naturally, you know, it was nothing against him as a human being. It was like one of those things where it's like my favorite film of all time is, for example, Batman Begins. Now, is that the one with the Riddler? Like, it's not your favorite film of all time if you don't know <laughs> something fairly fundamental like that. So it wasn't that. That's a really extreme example. And I have no idea really what I'm talking about. But that's my takeaway. When you ask me, did he come across okay? He came across as a really lovely guy. Um, but he, there was something along those lines, I think, that got on my ick. But, you know, so poor old Nick Mohammed. The mountain <laughs> came to him. I love it. I love it. So you're, you've uh, cited, I think, on our website, Sheppy, that um, Spy Who Loved Me is your favourite Bond, if I'm remembering correctly. What would be if the most I, annoying thing that like, a, a Bond fan, in inverted commas, could say when they said, oh, yeah, I think Spy Who Loved Me is my favourite Bond film. Is that the one with Grace Jones? <laughs> <laughs> if they were on point enough to say Grace Jones, I'd kind of be like, well, that's so random. I like the idea of Grace Jones being in Spy Who Loved Me as Stromberg. So it's like, well, it's, you know, it would be Naomi, I guess. But 
Um, no, that yeah, I mean, you're right. If someone said my favourite Bond film is any Bond film, but let's say The Spy Who Loved Me, and then have to say, is that the one? Or that's the one with the uh, the crocodiles and the speedboat chase, you know, vague stuff that people remember from watching it on ITV a million times, but they don't remember which one. So it's something really vague. So not even as cool as that's the one of Grace Jones's May Day or anything. It's, yeah, that's the one where he like runs across the crocodiles. And you're like, oh, you don't even remember the scene. So that that would annoy me. But if they said, oh, I don't really watch films, I don't really, I'm not into James Bond, but I do remember I, ha I have a favourite. It'd be weird if they said I have a favourite. If they said I had a favourite, or I remember this one being good, what's the one with crocodiles? If they phrased it that, that'd be brilliant. Of course, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's Live and Let Die, not Spy You Love Me. So it's that sort of thing. I would never want to be negative. Indeed, shoulders of giants. We're no negative Nellies here, unless you listen to the No Time to Die pod, in which case we're a little bit negative and a little bit <laughs> Understandably, understandably, Sheppy. Well, that was bloody beautiful and seamless and almost BBC Radio-esque, Sheppy, but let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. <laughs> and... Uh, you posed this today, Sheppy. You posed this, and I'm excited about it. Uh, you, do you want to tell the lovely listeners what you have set? Because they us? don't know which one. Maybe they don't. Maybe <laughs> they don't know. Sort of shuffle, I guess. Uh, it's the Italian job, the 1969 uh, Michael Caine, Noel Coward, Robert Powell uh, film, Benny Hill. Uh, yeah, and because of the ending, it was always on my mind as that would be a funny one to do a sequel for on the unspoken assumption that, you know, it's not a cheat. It's not like a year later and, oh, did you hear about fucking Charlie dying? So it's like, you know, assuming that there's gay. So that's really, that was a thing. But then, I've said it before, but yeah, like a few bodies ago, you mentioned that you really do like the Italian job. And I don't think I knew that. It's a real North by Northwest wannabe where you actually dig it quite a bit. And I didn't know you did. Um, and I do. Um, so so that's nice. So that just upped it. And I was going to do this for a while. It was always like, in, you know, a top contender each week, but it's always pipped to the post. Uh, but not this week, Jimmy. Today, we've, we've full on gone into, yeah, yeah, Italian job. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong. You've rewatched it. I rewatched re yesterday. Amazing. In fact. You know what, whilst we're talking about that, First of all, did we ever watch this film together? Um, I don't know. I think so, no. I don't yeah. remember, but then you don't remember watching Tequila Sunrise with me. Heartbreaking. So nonetheless, <laughs> in terms of Italian job, we might have watched it, but and it's possible that neither of us remember. That is possible. But we both always knew about it, I think. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw the Italian job? Do you remember what you felt about the ending, the ultimate cliffhanger ending? I think I think the baptism for me here was from Ian Sheppy, stepdad yeah. Ian. I think he was a massive fan of the mini chase and then just loved the ending. You know, it was massive curio for him. But I guess wanted to see my reaction to that too. I have yeah. to say, like, it is one of those movies that I watched very young and don't really can't give you right. a very accurate this was my reaction yeah. feeling. But I think um I think it's one of those ones where I'd have watched it and then maybe like at too young, if you know what I mean. And then maybe 10 years later, someone's like, oh God, and then the Italian job in the end. And, and then you sort of start to really appreciate 
what it was right. and what it did and you revisit you know so uh, yeah but how about you so now? do you well do you just in terms of that for a second though do you remember watching it as a teenager or even in the 20s sort of revisiting it even not even your second time but just in general do you remember moments of you watching it did you ever get it in dvd for example or did you always catch it on tv no i'm pretty sure i got it in dvd during like the uni days when all the student loan went on frivolous you know <laughs> early amazon purchases and cheeky pizzas you know what i mean like so i think uh, yeah, there's yeah, nothing absolutely. frivolous about that that's absolutely perfect <laughs> you're asking yes, me. and yes. the italian job so fair play to you and by the way some sort of extra. it's a great example because you know, I've had to pay five bucks to Amazon Prime for this uh, pleasure again this this week. And that's really, you know, one of those ones that just shows you, you know, it's worth keeping the DVDs because you never know when the streaming services well, are going to... I'm living proof of that. <laughs> Me and my wheezing laptop DVD, the last ever produced laptop, I think, on the face of the earth with a DVD drive, which is slowly <laughs> becoming more and more dry and crack and rickety as it goes along. Um, so, good stuff. Before we get actually into all the memoiriness of it, I suggested something that I think we should do by way of a tease at the top, mm -hmm. actually, just yeah. to see how this goes, which was to say, I thought it'd be quite fun as a general agenda item standing now that to just give the, the lovely listeners yeah. a little tease of what we're going to do. Maybe we share our titles and a trailer moment or sting right. or something yeah. this is a, like what would be i, I really like reason. this because it's realistic because i don't like spoilers but in this world if these films were released especially something like this in the italian job or the italian job too the trailers are going to be those trailers that give away the whole fucking film <laughs> like 1970s trailers fucking hell so um that would be a laugh so yeah um, and as often happens, one well, you know, sometimes happens. I had all when you wrote me this and said, Look, why don't we do this? I had already written my pitch, and within that was a, a quote. Someone said some dialogue, and then afterwards, in brackets, I'd written that's pure in the trailer. So I just took that for today's purposes, um, and that does happen sometimes. And also, of course, we talked about Clo uh, Coach Flintstock from your Teen Wolf 2, uh, <laughs> where that plays a huge part, that trailer and that mesmerizing speech of his. So yeah. <laughs> the trailer is better than the pitch, off. for sure. It followed the trailer rules, absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, well, all, you know, all the best trailers are better than the films. Uh, it doesn't happen too often, but yeah. So do you want me to give you the title and then the trailer quote? Yeah, do it, Sheps. Yeah, and any. And I'll give you the you year well. of the film as well. Um, yeah, nice. The year okay. of the film is nineteen seventy, so it's it's immediate. It's one year later. Um, in some territories, I've got the title, and then AKA the Italian Job Two, because some countries, some territories, it, it was just called the Italian Job Two. It's one of those things. But in England, and I think. In America, but it is in America, it was literally this, and then not even a colon, just aka the Italian job too, was what the film was called in America in 1970. And the proper title is The French Affair. Oh, Sheppy, I love it. And it's the same director and the same cast with some extra people, but I won't say that yet. Nice. Um, and the quote, which is at the end of the trailer, and it's the quote I'm going to give you now, it's a big close up. Um, on Mr. Bridger, and he says, and that's, of course, Noel Coward, 
and he says, uh, almost into the camera, but not quite, but almost, he says, there's only one thing I detest more than Italians, and that, dear boy, are the French. That's the, <laughs> the sting at the end of the trailer. <laughs> I love it, Sheffy. That's very yeah. tantalizing and exciting. I'm so happy. I'm so happy we're doing this as well. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's proper. Uh, that's like, so. What's yours? Okay, so mine is a few years later, 1972. It's called The mm. British Job, Sheffy. Oh. And at like the it. very end of the trailer, we've got um, this is again, you know, proper sting. We've got um, Altabani, who, uh, for those that haven't seen Italian Job for a little while, is the the big mafia boss, who's the the um, the key kind of antagonist, I guess, in the Italian yeah. Job, is speaking to his crew, who look all set, pure like Kane is at the end of Italian Job, like ready to go and do the job in Turin. They're yeah. all looking set. A couple of them look like they're ready to race in a bloody Formula One or something. Wow. Altabani just says to the crew. Just remote in a sort of Italian accent, which I won't do until I get really, really in the zone of the pitch. <laughs> uh, just remember this: in this country, they drive on the wrong side of the road. So that, and then it just cuts to a race through Piccadilly Circus. So that's that's basically oh, the, the end. That's <laughs> brilliant, and that's such a nice callback. I'm so glad we both rewatched the film for this because that is such a cool, nice callback to what Kane says. I mean, it's exactly what he does say. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, well, tantalizing. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm really keen to get into it, and yeah. and we will, we should soon actually, because mine really got away from me, and it's so I want to get through that um, <laughs> whilst we're all still vaguely young. But um, I remember watching this film like you with my stepdad Johnny, and he I think was the one who introduced it to me, uh, so that's nice. And I remember I think watching it with him in Cranley, and I I, I seem to remember. The end, and you know, I wasn't as young as you when you first saw it, so I was probably about eleven, and or maybe ten. Um, and I remember seeing the bus on the cliff at the end, and knowing even before the credit came up that that's the end of the film. And I'm like, oh, you, and knowing, of course, from the future that they never made another one. So I remember that, and I guess I've always loved it. And you know, Kane like we often say, he's one of those actors who regenerates and are different versions of Kane. You can look at a picture of Kane and know which version of him it is. Is it massive glasses, early 80s Kane? Or is it like more distinguished Christopher Nolan 000 Kane? Or is it early 70s, mid 70s, late 60s? So so that's nice. And I like this version of Kane. Um, so yeah, so, I, so I, I've always liked the Italian job. Um, I'll say on my repeat, I wrote this and then I rewatched it and then it did prompt me to add bits, which is why the thing has become a bit of a bloater. Um, but the one thing I'll say that I've never thought about before, and first of all, I should say, don't let me forget about this to bring this back, Kane that said at some point that they there was going to be a sequel and he said the basic plot. Um, so there's that, but even with that knowledge, it never occurred to me until yesterday that maybe the writer, and maybe this is really naive, and maybe everyone's like, duh, maybe the writer and the director perhaps, you know, were absolutely setting it up for a sequel. I always took the cliffhanger ending to be this fucking hell ending, which then Guy Ritchie homaged 
I would say, at the end of Lock Stop, this really nice cliffhanger, and you don't need to necessarily know what happens next. The film could have ended with them just driving away. It would be a really happy ending and a very satisfying ending, but to end it like that is just a kind of a fuck you, but in a really cheeky way, um, and I like it. Um, but there, but watching it again, there are loads of loose threads, yeah, which some of which I pulled, yeah. and some of which I put into an outline for number three. <laughs> but um, <laughs> generally speaking, it was um, yeah. There, there's more to it. Things like the last time. How do you pronounce the mafia guy's name? I went Altabani, but I think I might have Altabani. But I'm going to say it in lots of different ways because I know I wrote it in lots of different ways. So I'm just going to read it, and every time I'm not going to try and switch gear with my brain, I'm just going to read what I see. But I'm going to call him Albayati because it's that's easier for me to get out. So from now on, he's called Albayati, and he, um, the last time we see him in the Italian job he says like something like this isn't over we're gonna kill them or something like that it's like oh no so there are loads of things and like i say some of which i pulled so that was interesting to me did you where where do you sit on that were you always like me and you just assumed no that was just always the intention or did you always assume oh no they planned on a sequel and it no, never I happened I'm, I'm you sheffy i'm with you because we yeah. came to it so late and they'd had the, the mm-hmm. chance almost to make it and not that I knew. Well, we knew story. that there wasn't a sequel, but whether or not it occurred to you that they had originally planned for there to be a sequel. Yeah, no, no idea. Yeah, I, I always thought it was meant to end that way and kind of be yeah. a little tease for the dads, you know. It's and someone really appealed to the dads, this movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. It is a dad film for sure, uh, which is charming. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Yes, in terms of the, well, yeah. In terms of the overall feel and everything, it was wonderful. If you like, I'll quickly say the idea that Kane said that I heard. Yeah, I'd like to. That I don't know if I know it. Yeah. The way they get out of the cliff situation is they lean out and they take out um, the, the the air from the front tires of the oh, bus, wow. so it goes down, and then they're able to clamber out. But then the bus goes over the edge with the gold, and waiting at the bottom of the cliff is the mafia and Albayati, and they take the gold, and the sequel is they have to steal it back from the mob which is a great idea. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, knowing that meant, of course, that I had to not even consider who knows you know, what I would have done if I hadn't have known that. Known that. But, you know, maybe, maybe exactly the same thing. But of course, you know, right from the beginning, I was trying to think of something else. I didn't write down my solution, by the way, how they get out of the bus, because it's, I, I feel I just wrote, they escape um, and then move on. <laughs> But I know in my mind how it is, so I thought I'd risk it and just blather it out in a minute when the time comes, and hopefully it will be clear. And if it's not, you can just sort of like, you know, tell me. Maybe it's better that way. Um, but when you just read it, you're like, what a cop out! If that was the script, you'd be like, what? There was one other thing though I just wanted to say about the film before we get into the pitches, and that's this. Um, and again, maybe this is just me, and maybe I'm reading too much into this because um, it's just meant to be this really fun climax to the film but the way i i sort of saw it yesterday was at the end we have a sort of a hidden twist uh whatever the intention of the writer and so on um and maybe it's not meant to be thought this deeply but at a certain point during the chase at the end in the minutes uh, at a certain point it slowly dawns on you the viewer 
that these lads who we've only really seen <laughs> during the whole film, actually, most of them is just inept and foolish. We, at some point, some moment during the robbery, the raid, the escape, we realize that this team are actually, they're really fucking good. They're actually excellent. The twist is, oh no, no, they're, they're, they're brilliant. Um, just the driving and so on, but also the, the professionalism in the robbery and so on. And not even getting into the timing of the escape and all the things they planned out, which was soon was Charlie or maybe the Italian guy who dies at the beginning. But it's all, it's all so professional. And at the end, when they're racing away, the last third of that chase, basically when they get into the sewers, but actually a little bit before that, the, uh, the, the song kicks in and it gets all triumphant and happy. It's like we're told they've done it. They have escaped from the police and they have. And the police are still there, but they have got away. It's a pure, the end of Highlander wannabe. We're at the end of the sword fight, spoilers with the Kurgan, the music gets really triumphant because you know Lambert is in the zone and he knows that he's going to chop off the Kurgan's head and then he does. And it's nice. And it's the same with this. We're like, they have got away. They just haven't physically done it yet. And it's, so that means you can really enjoy, like they're almost like they're dancing as the, you know, going through the tunnels of the sewers and they're going up on the walls. It's like they're sort of doing this little victory dance as they're escaping and then they do escape. And then of course it all goes wrong, but that doesn't change the fact of that nice moment. And we as the audience then, the tension's gone and you just really enjoy it. It's this massive, happy release. And then you're kind of on their side in the bus and you're not kind of like, oh, maybe big William, you should just take it easy on those curves. You're kind of like, yeah, way. <laughs> and then you're like sort of complicit when it does all go horribly wrong. Big William, who hasn't really contributed actually to anything in the film, contributes the ending and damn near kills everyone. So that's exciting. Um, so that was my other little thought I just wanted to say. I love it, Shaki. I love the complicitness there. That's a beautiful point. Ooh. You're, you're in it. You you brought the you know you told them not to bring the beers, but you're having a beer anyway with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean Kane is there. He's enjoying it as well. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. Um, that's lovely. Oh, you know there there were a couple of other little tiny points. Very quickly, you know the last shot I noticed, and I'm sure people know this. Some people, the last shot of the bus and the camera pulls away and it's hanging off the side. The shot is reversed, and you can see a rock rolling up the side of the cliff. Um, so that's amazing. It's a pure Lost Boys wannabe when the camera, I think, goes in towards the cave, but you see the waves are going backwards. Um, so there you go. Um, oh, and final, final note, I had uh, a thought that in this universe where this film exists, 1970, the same year as this sequel, The French Affair, a film totally unrelated comes out of Italy that is the country, it turns out to be the country's largest ever release, like Italy's biggest film ever, and one of Europe's like massive smash hits. And it's, I'm gonna mispronounce it of course, but Il Lavoro Inglese, uh, the Italian, uh, the English job. Um, and, and it's a witty caper with some sexy Italian stuff about a gang of thieves from Rome who are recruited to knock off a notorious London gangsters casino. Fan speculation is always that it was like Mr. Bridges, casino but you never hear his name but so it's like pure fan wank uh, at some point during the film there's this casual mention of a quote-unquote a busload of Englishmen going off that cliff so you're like oh no um, Paramount tries to sue but it was thrown out of European court uh, 
maybe tellingly the judge was French, but actually kind of like Shaun of the Dead coming out the same year as like the Dawn of the Dead big film. The smaller production success helped the actual genuine sequel's awareness and possibly eventually the box office. And you can find out more on this 1994 Channel 4 documentary about the Italian job and its sequel. Uh, so there you go. So that's just my little extension of the universe for your listening pleasure. I love that. That's amazing, Sheffy. Look, before we get to your pitch, I just wanted to give you a couple of reflections on the rewatch because yes, of course, it was thank very, you. very rewarding. Uh, rewatch, so I encourage all listeners to have a have a have a rewatch of the Tandra. We'll only take eighty of your precious minutes, and it's really mm. fun. Um, so, <laughs> in the beginning, with Kane. Well, by the way, a amazing opening, amazing opening, where where the the master of plan potentially, as you say, Sheppy might have uh, get meets a very nasty ending down at the yes, Italian. And it's the set up during the, the whole opening titles in this really nice 60s song and he's driving having a lovely time with his sunglasses and cigarette yeah and yeah and he just i mean at least it's it was you would assume painless he just drives fast directly into this bulldozer and just explodes yeah. and then they're locked off that cliff there are so many cars that you see go off that cliff in that film oh, and of course it's all shown the audience a million times if the bus goes over these people inside with that gold just going to be jam at the bottom so yeah yeah, yeah. those foreshadowing um, it the whole way i yeah. uh, i i do love it when our hero and the equivalent of that character never meet in the movie but they're they're buddies but you can't really actually imagine kane and him being buddies if you know what i mean like i don't know like it's funny it's it's interesting like, i just always like that when they're kind of they've been working on this whole master plan they're great buds but we never see them have, obviously, have an espresso no. together or anything. And, and he's got no problem with sleeping with his wife, by the way. I know, it's assume. so dark. Came but yeah, politics. yeah, I guess I mean, there's no yeah. honour among thieves. I think they were all that sort of group, <laughs> you know. So he would have done the same had it been reversed and everyone knows it, da, da, da. She, you know, everyone knew her. But I'll say this, when was the last time you saw the film before this last viewing? I'd say... Uh, at least 15 years ago yeah I yeah know. yeah yeah how about you interesting well actually not that long ago like maybe three or four years ago um they were doing sort of like a little michael kane's binge i seem to remember so yeah yeah but, but yeah like i said we rewatched it on sunday and i'm really glad we did because a load, load of stuff came out so well, my first lol ships my first bit take was kane being picked up <laughs> by Lorna and in the car he pulls out one of those caracal hats and he's going, this is the motor of the Pakistani ambassador <laughs> that is amazing uh, uh, the way he gets tailored up and he is bossing that suit Sheppy maybe better than Craig has ever bossed yeah. a suit I'm going to say yeah. I mean he bosses yeah. that suit I'm like oh my god Michael Kane, yeah. man. I just, you have this hero like, shot when he emerges into the garage and it's the first so time you cool. see him in Look at yeah, it's like, that shot. It's nailed. Yeah, yeah it is nailed. Amazing. And, and the moment when Lorna's arranged for all of these, uh, I, I, we've got to assume maybe they're, uh, they're, they're sex workers. I don't know. But essentially, you've got all these ladies for him in this hotel room. And, uh, and they're all like, what would you like, Charlie? And it's just the way <laughs> he says, 
everything. <laughs> it's such an amazing line delivery. It's so beautiful. He's so like, it's it's like all his dreams have come true. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to mention there's a scene where Bridget goes to the bathroom in the prison with a newspaper and a robe. <laughs> Opens one of the trap doors to the cubicle and came is in there. How did in the prison? Know? Yeah, how did Kane a, obviously a get into the prison, but more importantly, know which one uh, he was going oh, go for? I because he's been in the prison for two years. He's the sort of person who knows he's had to break in or out, so he's a mega observant, and everything is run to clockwork in that prison right. because of this. Say so. so he knows exactly which schedule and exactly where he's going to sit. My little recollections immediately, my thoughts on the film. I really like Albayati, and I know that's not his name, but that's what I'm calling him. Um, I really like that character. I really like Kane, of course, his character. Um, I like all of the side characters, some of whom I've gone a bit deeper into, but I like them. And um, I really, really like Mr. Bridger. I really like his world and I could watch yeah. a 10 season TV show about, you know, the first two seasons of him in the, you know, running London and then the, the next eight seasons is him in prison um, and everything. Amazing. And it's, it's, yeah, really, really. And then there's like a spin off show done in the 70s because all this was made in the 60s where it's like him, the rise to power as another actor. And maybe this will like bookends with that actor, but it would be all count. So anyway, I really, really like Mr. Bridger. I like the yeah. world, I like the performance. Um, he is you know, he's an underworld gangster. He's come up, and I'll bet you anything he was never posh. He, you know, he came from this, you know, the east end streets, I'm saying. So um, yeah, and his you know, the, the patriotism and the, the, the queen love and so forth. Um, yeah. And it's little, you're kind of told how he has Wilson Fisk, this bitch. And, you know, he says like about paying for the guard's house or something. So, you know, you're told in kind of subtle ways that, you know, because he's bought everyone, uh, like John Lemassure, whose name I always mispronounce as well, from Dad's Army, yeah. who's amazing. And I'd have to, yeah, he's befuddled. Um, so that's what I wanted to mention, these, these characters who I really love. I don't actually like Professor Peach. Um, I don't yeah. like Benny Hill's performance, um, and I don't yeah. think he's funny. But the character, in theory, works. Maybe I just don't like Benny Hill. But you know, maybe it's not his fault. He did what he was hired to do, but it doesn't quite work for me. A bit like Bobo, the Clockwork Owl in Clash of the Titans. That's Benny Hill in the Italian film for me. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, what were some other points you wanted to I only had a couple of little extras, Shepard, which is just, I love the briefing from Turin that they get from this man on the ground, and then, yeah. <laughs> which is so rare. I've kind of pulled, I've done a similar one in my pitch too, but it's just a ridiculous briefing, but it's kind of, he's walking through the streets of Turin. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a sort of a it's even more advanced than a zoom video it's like he's basically got a drone following him in front of himself <laughs> and then when he's done like outer body like is yeah. there as well like an amazing sort of, and then kind of always spikes the camera <laughs> it's yeah amazing. it's like it's like he's unaware that the camera's there though he's not looking at the camera he doesn't spike <laughs> the camera it's like it's weird because he could look at the camera as if be like, hello, Mr. Bridger, that sort of thing. But he doesn't. So it's really strange. It's really yeah. strange. 
but there you go. I think, uh, the, I mean, there's obviously, I, I know this film has been voted, you know, top one, if not maybe top one British movie of all time at some point or another, and you know, on some, some surveys, or whatever. And I know that, you know, the quote has, has probably been the top of most quote lists for, for British yes. movies as well, you know, only supposed to blow the bloody doors <laughs> off. And, you know, that that's a beautiful beat. It's a beautiful beat. Yeah. I also really laughed out loud on this one with um, wouldn't be so sure about the English cousin. This is Altibani talking at his big dinner. You know, they're, they're kind of, his colleagues are underestimating the English. And he goes, I wouldn't be so sure about the English. They're not as stupid as they look. And then you see Kane like going up a mountain on this little bike. I absolutely <laughs> love that. I roared at that. I'm really happy. And, um, and it really looks like shit in the sewers, I wrote down. Like when they got the yeah. wipers on during the celebratory moment, like you're saying, Shepard, but it does look like they're driving through shit. Oh, well, that's amazing. it. That's uh, great. What a nice touch. And I wanted to just say as well, like just a quick nod to the director, Peter Collinson. I, I mean, I, I, I got this from a little Wikipedia in yesterday, but so here's the thing, Shepard, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, from the age of eight until 14, he attended the Actors' Orphanage in Chertsey, Surrey. Where he had the chance to write and act in many plays. Noel Coward, who was president of the orphanage at the time, became his godfather and helped him to obtain jobs in the entertainment industry. And of course, he then cast Noel Coward in Noel Coward's last performance, which is nice. And then you've got during the filming of The Earth. Wow, I did not know that. It's That's a amazing. Story, isn't it? Yeah. That's really nice. And then during the filming of The Earthing in 1980, Collinson discovered he was terminally ill and he died at 44 from lung cancer. Okay. Really sad, man. But, you know, a lovely story there with no Yeah. Wow, oh, I had no idea about any of that. That is amazing. I did check his filmography, um, Collinson, just to see what else if he's done anything um, that I'm familiar with and it was just a random stuff. That's really nice. Uh, lovely. That you say, uh, hurrah, and good old Noel Coward to us on that. So good. Now, there's more I could say about Italian job, uh, but I won't. I will get to it unless there's anything else you wanted to. I am ready show. for l'affaire Francaise, Sheppy. I am ready. I'm poised. I'm happy. Okay. I'll just jump straight in then because it, it, it does go off on one, so I apologize. Uh, the French Affair, aka The Italian Job 2, 1970, directed by Peter Collinson. Starring Michael Caine, Noel Coward, Margaret Bly, who's uh, Lorna, um, the American girlfriend of Charlie, Michael Caine, who I give her a much larger role in this one. Tony Beckley as Camp Freddy, who also I really liked, actually. Yeah. Um, Raphalon as Alveati. Uh, now, Jean-Paul Bellamondo as uh, Jean-Claude. Benny Hill, Professor Peach. Jacqueline Bissett as... Um, or Jacqueline Bisset as Marie, uh, Alan Dion as Luke, with Robert Powell, Harry Baird as Pete William, uh, John Le Monsieur as the governor, and uh, Michael Standing as Arthur. Um, Arthur is the really stupid one who, uh, of, the, of the group who, you know, in the first one steals the bird, um, says, oh, I could eat a horse. And um, he... <laughs> and he's the one who should have only blown the bloody doors off, and he's the one who gives this kind of like <laughs> smile and laugh to Kane's face, and then Kane says, you're only meant to blow the bloody doors off. So I've liked Arthur a lot, and I've given him a bit more to do as well, because he's amazing. So we open 
Um, and it's an opening helicopter shot. We're slowly flying over a large epic vista of the mountain range with just the sound of the wind. We have that for a minute, for a second. After a few moments, we have some stylized voiceover from the previous film over the images. So we hear, smile, you bastards. We won, didn't we? And we saw over the mountains a moment more. And then we have um, Alfiati saying, pretty car. And we keep going. And then Professor Peach saying, isn't it a shame people aren't more like flowers? And we keep going. We hear Charlie saying, it's right on the edge. The gold's pulling us over. And we're soaring through thin, wispy clouds. And there's a longer beat. And then we hear Charlie say, hang on a bit, lads. I've got a great idea. And there's a beat. Uh, and then uh, the Self-Preservation Society kicks in. And we have the opening credits. Paramount Pictures present. Michael Caine, Noel Coward, The French Affair. And the credits roll over um, the, the mountain swoop. And then at the end of that, directed by Peter Collinson, the music ends. And we see in the distance, perched on the edge of the mountain road, the bus. And we move in, move in, move in pretty close. The bus teeters in the silence of altitude. And we cut to inside the bus. And we are immediately where we left off. Everyone in their positions inside the teetering vehicle. And then I write, they escape. So, <laughs> so basically, as make this as succinct as I can, what they do is this. Uh, Kane gets them all to basically, then right at the back, they open the doors, and also where Big William is sitting in the driver's seat, he opens the window or kicks it out or whatever. And then at the same time, the group sort of split into two, and they begin to climb out of the side entrances onto the bonnet of the bus and they don't touch the ground and about half of them are, are on the bonnet and half of them including Kane is are inside still but they all not link arms but you know they hold onto they grip each other's forearms so they're all connected going out of the bus as well they're connected and then as Kane sort of directing them going go oh, now lads do this they basically um, and I guess it's like the mini drivers because they're pretty uh, spry and shit I've written down their names, I'll get to them later, but I really like those three mini drivers. Um, one of them's Dominic, who's really posh. Anyway, they lean out, so they're all still connected, holding hands, kind of like a big ring of roses, but looping in to the, uh, to the bus. They lean back, so again, their feet, for example, are on the bumper of the bus or against the grill. Um, and so they never touch the ground, but they lean back as far as they can to totally counterbalance the weight as much as they can. The cane is going in, but the gold is still, you know, it's like doing a bit of a rock, rock uh, up and down. So the, the gold is still sliding towards the door and Kane sees that actually there's only one choice really. And he waits for a downward swing where it's going down and everyone's gripping. There's lots of close up of like the hands gripping each other's arms and it's like moving a little bit because they've been gripping for a long time so there's little bits of friction and the feet pressed up against the bumper and it's like slipping a little bit and they're leaning right back to the point where like the person who's leaning the furthest back there back of their head is like only a couple of inches above the ground and they're just holding on holding on there's the strain and then on the downward little rock came using maybe a little pole or something he's got instead of hooking it and pulling the gold towards pushes the gold and it uses that momentum, it bursts out the back of the bus and goes down uh, and, then Kane, and then the thing goes back up. So it's almost, the bus is almost even. Kane works his way back 
they all climb out the sides at the same time and then they all let go at the same time and the bus basically stays where it is and then all just like lying collapsed on the road like huh and then the bus goes and crashes over the side as well but like you know everyone's off and then that cr- you know, crashes down and then they're all just there they're all like they uh, so that's it that's the just that's the description and then back to the script they all somberly they all look down i hope not i hope i hope it's not going beyond the realms of you know nice nice teamwork and happy nice yeah yeah. so they all somberly look down pure last crusade like the wreckage below and camp freddy's like well that's a load off and charlie looks (laughs) at him every cut um now we cut to paris um, it's a classy and old city building, uh, like a, an office, very plush, very nice. It's a books, a bit like M's office. Um, old, a view of the Eiffel Tower is you know, out the window, naturally. An older gentleman is introduced, oldish. Uh, this is Jean-Claude, played by Jean-Paul Bellamondo. Um, he looks healthy and tanned. He arrives in a nice suit. He, he, he greets his nice secretary, secretary who helps him off with his nice coat. And he sits at his nice desk. He's obviously very important. He has a few polite words with the secretary um, who informs him he has a meeting with the French economics chancellor at three. And the deputy prime minister missed him earlier, but will call back. And she asks if he wants his morning, you know, cafe au lait. And he says, Edamon, please. And they're speaking in English with French accents, but we always assume, you know, they're speaking French. In a moment, please, I have some matters to see to immediately. So she leaves and he opens his like desk roller deck thing for numbers and he dials a number on his big clunky phone. There's a moment we hear it ring on the other side and then someone on the other side picks up and the guy says, tell me about the gold. And we cut. Um, so we're back to the lads. and I'm gonna keep referring to more or less as the lads with that group. They found a way down the cliff and they're standing on a tiny little track near the bus wreckage with the twisted metal wrapped around the impossibly mangled gold. And Charlie's like, we can't hang around. The mafia will be right on our tail. And oh yeah, his second in command, who doesn't really do too much. He's the one who says they went that away. He's the one who says, smile, you bastards. We went. Um, he's called Bill Bailey, this character. So I'm just going to call it Bill Bailey. It's, a, you know, it's one of those weird things. But there's that episode of The Incredible Hulk where he's called David Brent. Weird stuff. Nonetheless, Bill Bailey, his number two, comes up to him and says to Charlie, you know, they'd, they'd be watching the airports and the stations, but the roads. And uh, Charlie's like, and the bloody roads. So let's get down there and collect that bloody gold before they turn up. And then he says, Arthur, you get down that trail a bit. See if you can flag down a car or two. And Arthur, you know, he's like, that's not going to be enough for all of us, is it, Charlie? And Charlie's like, you want to carry the gold to Geneva? Two cars are better than one car. One car's better than no car. And if you can't find a car, bring back a bloody tractor for all I care. And Arthur, (laughs) and he scampers off and maybe one or two others go with him. And Charlie to the rest of the lads says, let's move it, lads. Get that gold up and be ready to move. Police are one thing. The mafia, that's something else. There's nothing these men won't do. Nothing that won't stop them from killing every last. And he trails off and then to himself is like, Lorna. Now, just about the first film, he gets Lorna, when things are heating up with the mafia, he gets on a train to Geneva, a plane to Geneva. And that's where they're going to take the gold to this bank that, you know, has been set up by Mr. Bridger and stuff. Um, but 
he gets onto the plane and she's like, I love you, Charlie, but they're watched by Albayati. So yeah. that's a loose thread that's never. So yeah. you, there is a version of this where she's met at the airport and kidnapped, but um, we shall see. So he's like, Lorna, because he's like realizing. So we cut to Lorna lands in Geneva. Now, this is basically an unspoken flashback because she left and then, then they did the job. So this is like probably 24 hours earlier. But it never says that. But when you think about it logically, every time we cut to Lorna, it's 24 hours ago. So Lorna lands in Geneva. And as she's leaving the airport, she just misses four large mob hoods as they enter the airport looking for her. And they walk past each other. You know, she exits, they enter, and they're missing just by the skin of their teeth. That's so uh, so, yeah. yeah, right, totally. So um, back at the bottom of the cliff on the dusty road, Charlie and the lads, having collected now and salvaged the gold from everything, um, it's now all in, like in three dust piles. And Charlie's like, now where's that transport? And then a comically feeble horn sounds and everyone turns to see Arthur slowly rolling up in a farm truck, apparently unearthed from 1942. Very old, very wobbly, you know, the, the wheels, the, the tires are doing proper like family trucks that type wobbly wheels covered in chicken poo and chickens and arthur uh, everyone's just looking you know mouths agape and arthur drives up and he gives charlie like an enthusiastic thumbs up uh, with this big grin and charlie to himself says bloody hell uh so we cut to bridger in his lovely uh royal sweet cell and he learns of the hiccup and he's displeased we cut to Lorna back in Geneva. And again, it's a bit of a Christopher Nolan um, because it's still technically a flashback. She now, she rolls up to the bank as arranged for, yeah, by Mr. Bridger and everything. Uh, but something seems off, um, you know, and Lorna is wary and she spots some dodgy looking dudes hanging around the square outside the bank. You know, Geneva is very nice, but they're obviously watching for someone and she clocks them as mob. And I, in brackets, I've written, she has experience here which is something for, for um, later. So then, uh, but yeah, but by later, I mean, I mean Italian job three, um, which I don't go into, don't worry. Um, she turns to go, but is spotted. There is a semi-tense, fast walking chase through the square across the street, Lorna walking as calmly as she can, but she's on the verge of panic. Um, she goes right into the lobby of a plush hotel, tries to keep calm, but all of her exits are now blocked as more mafiosos, large dudes, are entering in their suits and hats, and she seems trapped as they converge. And then she creates a massive scene, with, uh, very comical with quick thinking. She's dressed very well, she looks very good, and she has a large American voice that carries. So she starts to complain to the nearest attendant, who is almost immediately joined by the maitre d' about, and she's going on about the quality of the room, the bed, the food, the service, everything. For example, she says, I wanted my dog washed and groomed by 12 o'clock and he's still in his pajamas. And other guests are turning to look and the manager is called over. And she's, he's fawning all over her and she takes it to the next level and she accuses the hotel of bias against blondes. And more people stop and to gather and watch the commotion. And in the chaos, Lorna escapes and uh, the goons gurn. Um, meanwhile, we cut back and it's the shitty truck and Charlie and the team, they're all crammed into this tiny thing with the gold and they're all like, you, you know, it just stinks. Uh, and they make it to a tiny village. Uh, Charlie finds a post office 
where we can uh, he can use he calls uh, forwards and he calls the bank in Geneva, um, uh, which forwards his call to the hotel that Lorna is now hiding in, which brings us to present day with her, um, who made it there after giving the mob the slip, contacted the bank and gave the, the details and has just been waiting by the phone ever since. So Charlie speaks to her, tells her what's going on. Um, he also learns about the mob being in Geneva and Charlie's like, I guess that means Geneva's out. Uh, and she learns about the situation um, and, and, she's, and someone's made inquiries at this point, and there's, a, there's another town about 100 miles away, with, which has a train station, and if they can get there, maybe they can get a train out. Um, Lorna tells Charlie to get the gold and the lads there with the gold under like a smelly tarp or something at the back of the truck. Uh, you know, wobbly wheels, 20 miles an hour, an inch from death, but she doesn't know if there will be any trains that would help, but Charlie has a plan for that. Uh, Lorna says, I suppose now you're going to tell me to stay here, or better yet, go home, huh, Charlie? And Charlie's like, not exactly. I'd like you to go back to Italy. And Lorna's like, you want me to go back? And Charlie's like, yes. And, and what about the mob? They won't be looking to you where you'll be going. And Lorna's like, and where will I be going, Charlie? And he says, straight to jail. And she reacts to that over the phone. Um, so we find out that Professor Peach, now the last time we saw him in the Italian job, he's being arrested for uh, molesting, yeah, a vocal woman on the bus. So he's in a little police uh, station in his in a cell. Um, so Lorna hops a jet because no one expects her to fly back. So no one's looking in the Italian airports for people arriving. He makes it back into the city. He gets to this little police station. And in a comical scene, she does a face and Murdoch and breaks uh, Peach out by pretending to be his nurse. And, you know, she's all dressed up as a nurse and she has like a little wheelchair and, you know, funny scene with her and the police front desk officer and Peach. And she's, you know, dressed all the, all the part and she's very strict and very scary and very sexy. And all the Italians are intimidated and terrified and in love. And so she gets Peach and they split. I am too, by the way, Sheppy, at this stage, <laughs> in your sequel, <laughs> she's <amazing. laughs> <laughs> uh, meanwhile, we see Albayati. He is furious. He is determined. Um, you know, we've seen him before, but this this man, his power is vast, but it's spread thin. He's feeling really frustrated. However, word reaches him that the mini and the bus wreckage has been discovered. So he and his men get to that starting point uh, and start on Charlie and the Gold's trail. And yeah, they, they've been business. Charlie and the lads make it to this small town that Lorna directed them to and find the tiny, practically abandoned train station. Uh, Camp Freddy is like, this isn't a station, it's a chicken coop with rails. No one's gonna come through here, Charlie. Oh, Charles. And Charlie says, now hang on, we've already changed signals for the roads and diverted cars in that. Well, what's to stop us doing exactly that again? But not with roads not with cars, and he waits for Camp Freddy to catch up, and Camp Freddy says, you simply can't be serious. And Charlie says, if you've got a better idea, I'd love to hear it. So uh, we also, by the way, have a nice scene around this time with Camp Freddy. Uh, I like him, but you know, he's there as a representative, of course, of Mr. Bridger. That's why he's part of this whole thing. So, you know, Charlie makes the occasional comment, or maybe someone makes the occasional insinuation, 
that Camp Freddy is one of them, that he's quote unquote management. And at a certain point, Camp Freddy has had enough. Here's a nice little moment where he says, now do you look here, all of you lot, I came to Italy with you, I ripped off the gold with you and I escaped the law with you. We escaped death together. We'll make it over the mountains together and we'll get out of this together. I sweated blood, dust and grit with all of you lot. So don't you, any of you stand there and tell me I'm not a part of this team, that I'm not a lad. I am a lad. And there's like this sort of like sort of embarrassed and shameful quiet moment. And Charlie says quietly, all right, you heard the man. He's part of the team. He's one of us. So let's get on with it. So everyone files out and kind of, you know, a bit bashful. And um, Charlie and Camp Freddy sort of share a nice moment with us in silence and sort of acknowledge that. Um, so that's nice. Lorna and Peach use Peach's know-how and some technical jiggery pokery to break into a control box on some breakers next to some railway lines and they rejig, or rather Peach, rejigs the international train routes to be diverted. I don't know how. So a cross-country Alps train will pass through Charlie's village. So Charlie and the lads are at the station and this train is on the way to them and Lorna and Peach are on the train, uh, racing from Italy through this tiny little town and up and over the Alps, across the Alps into France. But the mob and Albayati are closing in. Someone spots the approaching train, you know, at this little dusty platform and shouts to Charlie, who rouses the lads. The mob cars enter the town, their big black cars, you know, kicking up great clouds of brown dust. And the train is agonizingly, you know, really slowly pulling up to stop at the station. But the lads all tumble on, all carrying like these pilfered and scrounged apple crates and so on, all, you know, full of the heavy gold. And, you know, they're all staggering under these things. So it's going to be close. The lads get on the train with the gold and the train departs moments before the mob descend. They don't know the train was there. There's no sign of it. It's in the distance. All the roads parallel to the tracks anyway won't go anywhere. The train's going right up into the mountains and there aren't any roads on that route. So anyway, they're fucked, the, the mob. Um, Lorna and Peach, of course, are on board the train. So now Lorna and Charlie have a very happy and kissy reunion. Lorna is all over and embarrassed and failing to be stoic Charlie. Charlie's, uh, well, yeah, so she, she's like, it's very Piggy and Kermit. So she's like, oh, Charlie, I love you, I love you. And she's you know, raining kisses all over his face. And he's like, now, now. And all of the lads are like gurning and grinning and mock kissy kissy. And Robert Powell and Bill Bailey mock a romantic embrace. And Charlie's like, very funny. And there's a moment of levity and relief because they seem to be. <laughs> and they might have a tiny adventure on this train, but you know, it's not really necessary. I don't even know if it's like a nice train or if they're just like riding on a box car. I think that's probably more likely. Um, so the uh, the train though takes them across the Alps and into France. Uh, so like, so they switch countries really at about the halfway point. It's the same as the first film. Um, they go to Italy at about the halfway point. So they get into France and around the same point in the film. Um, all scenes are written in brackets are punchy as fuck, meaning a lot happens in a very short amount of time. It's, you know, there's very little sitting down exposition. The rest of the film uh, therefore sees our heroes as their and it's like forward momentum as they must transport the gold through France. Um, every dock and airport is being watched by a multitude of rivals, villains and law enforcement. Um, so they leave the train at different points. So the gold is separated like five 
ways maybe as the group split up and go off in twos and threes so there's now like a slight great escape vibe where everyone's off on their own little mission um, and everyone has their own mini path adventures uh, the main focus of course is on Kane with Camp Freddy and Lorna and then there's each year we cut back occasionally to tiny little adventures in these little twos and threes who have split off uh, one scene has uh, one of the group get into it with a snooty French type who's like, oui, monsieur, oui, oui, you're the one taking the oui, mate. That's one little scene. Um, now, snooty French type notwithstanding, there aren't any real French stereotypes or easy jokes here. It's one thing I liked about the first one. It doesn't really show Italians as like, you know, pasta eating. There's the one Gurning guy from a lower low, but that's fair enough. There are millions of English Gurning guys from a lower low. So, so that's all right. Um, so no one is nasty in this film. They're not just baddies because they're French. In fact, there are loads of really cool French characters. I want to be clear on that. Um, and there are plenty of idiot English people as well. So although at one point we have a slight reference to the previous film, when Arthur reaches out of a stolen car's window or something and steals a piece of meat from a cafe as they speed through, and he says again, I could eat a horse. And Tony, the driver, says, I think you just did. And Arthur Gurns, because you know, ha ha ha, in France, ha ha ha. So um, Chris and Dominic and Tony are the mini drivers, by the way. Uh, and, and so we know that the drivers are good, so that's nice. Dominic is the massively posh one, of course. So at some point, he has a run in with a hostile man. <laughs> I haven't got into any more detail. Um, Lorna remains fiercely loyal to Charlie and shows wit and nerve and all of that. The lads are told that they must rendezvous, and Powell says, speak English, can't you, uh, in Calais, where Charlie tells them Mr. Bridge will have transport waiting for them just here off the main docks. And Lorna's like, okay, and how will you let Mr. Bridge know all of this? And Charlie takes her you know, to one side by the arm and says to her, you know, first, never interrupt me in front of the lads again. Second, don't ever presume I don't have a plan B, C, D, E, and bloody F ready to go. All right. And Lorna says, yes, Charlie. And Charlie says, and three, I have no bloody idea. Uh, so the, the group <laughs> splits. Quote, and <laughs> and uh, they must find their own transport and their own way into and through the country. Uh, each is carrying a quantity of bars each, depending on their personal strength and what they what vehicles they've managed to get together, all sorts. It's a real, it's a mad, 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 mad world. They all get together and they, everyone has like a weird different vehicle that use like a milk float, something weird, like that horse and cart, all sorts of stuff. Um, and you know, riding, like hitchhiking and meeting various people who either help or hinder them. And this is all the very sunny B and C characters, just tiny little two minute scenes, uh, which are peppered throughout. Uh, Charlie does indeed manage to get word to Mr. Bridger. Uh, he calls the governor of the prison, John Le Monsieur, again, um, reversing the charges from the payphone in this tiny French village. There's a funny scene with Monsieur going for it with his classic befuddled, bemused and utterly bewildered shtick at the continued audacity he must deal with. Uh, Charlie speaks to him in a witty code, explaining everything they need. And the call ends with Charlie saying, thank you. Oh, and you might want to rethink that get up before seeing him. Mr. Bridger hates that tie and hangs up. And um, 
Monsieur, like the governor, touches his tie, affronted, but then like sort of catches himself and is bemused all the more. Um, so the lad, so he gets word to Bridger about what they mean. The lads uh, continue to be pursued across France by the Italian mob, who are outraged. Albayati is out for blood and has a real cold determine, determination that we didn't really witness before. Um, Charlie at one point is like, what is it about Sicilians and vengeance in Camp Freddy? They do seem to go for it, don't they? And Charlie's like, it's like they've got a chip on their shoulder the size of the Leaning Tower of Bloody Pisa in Camp Freddy, or a great big dollop of tiramisu at any rate. But a massive problem arises, twists, sort of. Um, Mr. Bridger is on his way, like he does to go to the dentist and the funeral and everything in the first film. He's on his way to this vital meeting to organize all the transport for the lads on the Hush Hush, and also about the possible fallout from Italy because of all of this. The one that the pretense of attending a wedding of a fictional god niece. Uh, but his, the, on his way, his, the police van he's being transported in is run off the road and the guards are clubbed and knocked out by these nasty men and the back doors are then flung open, revealing, of course, Mr. Mr. Bridger sitting regally and unimpressed and the men kind of take him away. Uh, we cut back to the fake wedding uh, with Mr. Bridger's lieutenants as well as the fake bride and groom and the fake guests all waiting for Mr. Bridger to arrive. And he's obviously very late and everyone's very confused and restless, all in their Sunday bests. And on the steps outside the church, the priest looks at his watch and says to the flummoxed bride and groom, he'd better get a move on. I have a christening at three. And the bride lifts up her veil to take a drag of a cigarette and says, I didn't even want to get married. And the groom looks at his shoes dejected. Um, so for the next portion of the film then we cut back periodically to Mr Bridger as he's being transported no one speaks to him but he's uh, like he's seen in the back of a van then on a boat then in a car and in the back seat you know between two goons and each time we see him Mr Bridger sits pure composed regal irked um, as if his waiter had bought the wrong butter knife uh, with his same superior vastly unimpressed gait and expression utterly unruffled and not at all pleased. Um, no one speaks to him, um, but in each time he has the same stuff going on, he's somewhere else, he's definitely going somewhere. Now, at first we're led to believe that he was abducted by the mob, but once he reaches his final destination, a large and empty warehouse, there's a kind of twist. Uh, he's introduced to Luke, a well-dressed man of obvious ranking, and he sits opposite Mr. Bridger in the warehouse, and um, Mr. Bridger recognizes him as someone of rank and thus worthy of his attention. So Mr. Bridger says, yes, well, you're the swilling billy club here, I dare say. Have you any concept of what sort of Pandora's box you're meddling with? And Luke says, we have some, Monsieur Bridger, with a French accent and the penny drops, plus it's Alan Dion. So we, we might have already have guessed. Um, Luke is the smooth, sharply dressed second in command. It, he's in France, of course. He's taken Bridger to Mr. Bridger to France. He's very civil to Mr. Bridger and makes sure he is treated with tremendous respect. But we also learn that Luke is a cold and calculating and dangerous man, uh, an established field agent in the French Secret Service, ruthless. Uh, Mr. Bridger is unimpressed. He speaks back to Delon in French. Uh, which we see with subtitles and something pithy 
and along the lines of, you know, in perfect French, if this is the best accommodation you could procure, I recommend a change of profession. And Dion in English says back, oh, you speak the language of love, Mr. Butcher. And Mr. Butcher says, not quite. I speak the language of an oily oik who has simply no idea what he's up against or what he started. And Delon is like, you are what the English call cocky, Mr. Bridger. And Mr. Bridger is like, a gentleman is never cocky, he is resolute. And uh, Delon, I must say, you are not showing the expected English reserve or even, dare I say, English manners, Mr. Bridger. And Mr. Bridger sighs and he says, Manners are for gentlemen, women, and schoolmasters. I see none here. And then we have a nice big close-up of Bridger, as, yes, he says, there's only one thing I detest more than Italians, and that, my dear boy, are the French. And in brackets, that last line's in the trailer. So Delon works for the government, but he's crooked. Um, and, he, and he works for the, another big antagonist who we've already met, the... Um, and that's the corrupt French government official played by Jean-Paul uh, Bellamondo. Um, and so Luke, played by Alain de Delon, is his second in command. Um, and of course, so uh, Bellamondo uses his, the police and even the not crooked secret service. Uh, he uses them with lies and deceit and so forth in his attempt to snare our heroes and capture the gold he wants the vast wealth, of course, but also the power that will come with it. He's a power-hungry politician. What do you know? Uh, Bellamondo never really uh, leaves his plush office, by the way, during the whole film. He's like an armchair general who we cut back to a bit, uh, but not much. He's aided also by an apparently nasty and sexy lady, played by Jacqueline Bissett, <laughs> who is given orders to um, track the lads down, stop them, and locate the gold. She hits the road and is actively on their trail, reporting back to Bellamondo and using the full government power um, at, his at his department's disposal to use police and other resources, whatever she needs. Uh, spoiler, when their paths finally meet, Charlie is somewhat smitten and maybe she likes him a little bit too, but no one else trusts her a bit. Bill Bailey says, what's French for femme fatale? Uh, Lorna says, uh, what's French for your roots are showing? Uh, during all of this, we see the lads in their little groups having misadventures as they attempt to transport their little bundles of gold across the country and to the coast. This includes an extended sequence uh, involving the Tour de France uh, with several of our heroes, but not Charlie's group, taking to bicycles, each with as much gold as they can carry, trying to escape the mob in the race. And there's a nice chase between them and the Italians and maybe the French police as well, as well as the corrupt French agents which are on them, and maybe Bisset as well, all over windy and cool roads and little French villages, um, made all the harder, of course, since all the heroes are laden down with a lot of gold bars. Uh, halfway up this huge and steep hill on the mountainside, uh, one of the lads, probably Arthur, pedals with all his might, but then slowly loses his fight with weight and gravity and starts to roll backwards down the hill, at first slowly, then faster, then super fast, backwards down the mountain road, taking corners, I mean, it's overcranked as fuck, and making the small group of racing cyclists who he's tearing at, they all kind of separate and let him like race through the middle, and then they like reform. 
um, and he's going still backwards. He's like, ah, ah, ah. It's like, turns into like this really massive, like it's a really famous scene in like English. You know, it's always like, oh, that really good. It's like Frank Spencer, you know. Um, and, you know, he goes through the pursuing mob as well. And he ends up sailing off the edge in a very impressive Frank Spencer-esque stunt that becomes a bit of a classic scene. And he flies off backwards and he leaves the bike in mid-fall and then crashes, face, uh, crashes through the barn roof uh, landing on a shit ton of hay and we cut to inside the barn and Arthur's head like pops up from this large hay bale and he's all got hair and you know hay and shit in his hair and he's greeted by this buxom lady and her gruff farmer father and Arthur's like bonjour and the lady coyly is like bonjour and then Arthur smiles at her and, and then he like goes to smile at the father and sees the father's growling gnashing stern face and Arthur comically loses his smile and tries to look affable, and then a chicken lands on his head. Um, and nothing else, you know, not everything goes well, because two of the lads barely manage to escape a close uh, call, but they lose a third of the gold to the French baddies, and it's taken back to Paris, where Luke gloat, uh, gloats with it in front of a very unamused Mr. Bridger. Um, so, um, but then, from um, Bissett, Charlie discovers Mr. Bridger is captive in Paris and he must turn back from the coast and go to rescue him. So which he, Lorna and Fred, Camp Freddy go to do, telling everyone else, get to the bloody coast, we'll catch up with you. And this of course is pure third act. They get to Paris, Charlie, Lorna and Camp Freddy uh, and maybe the former French femme fatale. Um, and they get to Mr. Bridger and they have to save him, reclaim the lost gold. The plan is to make a diversion to lure the guards and Luke Arendrion away from where they're holding Mr. Bridger, Camp Freddy is going to really camp it up, um, go out there, uh, pretend to be drunk and stagger into the compound, getting all the attention. Um, and But before he, the plan is like a little quiet moment and he's obviously a little bit nervous and Charlie gives him a tiny little pep talk, just the two of them. And it ends with like Charlie saying, just hold your nerve. After all, you're one of the lads, ain't you? And Camp Freddy acknowledges the moment and he goes and performs and he gets all the nasty men to come and like look at him. Um, and the diversion works and they best still on and they escape. They get Bridger, they get the gold. Um, Camp Freddy's fine. They get on Triumph motorbikes, all in racing green with Mr. Bridger in a sidecar. And then the main climax of the film is uh, sort of a mini equivalent of the mini chase. The heroes are chased out of Paris, through Paris, all of that, by motorcycle cops, the last of the mob, and the French agents. Everything comes together. Peach, again, uses his technical skills um, to get all the bridges in the region to open at the right moments. So Charlie and the motorcycle team do like really cool jumps on the opening bridges, uh, performing a series of amazing and, again, instantly cinematically classic stunts jumping the bridges, sailing over rivers and cars, and bikes and pedestrians. Camp Freddy is freaking out on the back of a bike, which Tony is driving. And Tony says, what's the matter? Never played leapfrog, as they jump over another car. Um, the uh, pursuing mob, police and agents attempt to follow. But of course, now the bridges in question are now too high. And so we have an equivalent of the minis going down the cliff with some spectacular jumps and misses and crashes really extravagant, like massive crashes of cars, real Blues Brothers wannabe. 
um, and some pursuing cars end up in the river, some end up going into an upstairs room of a house or something, uh, some into other police cars, uh, some comically and highly exaggerated flips and flops and spins through the air like metal ballet. A-team style though, we always cut and we see the drivers emerging looking very angry and rubbing their heads. And the chase goes all through the streets of Paris and then out into the countryside, heart racing stuff, jumps, spills, crashes, and then the happy music as they sail through the fields in the countryside, they've lost everyone behind them all the way to the sea. And we have a shot of Charlie, Lorna, Mr. Bridger uh, stopping to make an emergency phone call. All the heroes converge on the French uh, seashore at the rendezvous point. But as they're all congratulating themselves and catching up, they discover that there is no rescue uh, transport waiting for them. Uh, it was never set up originally by Mr. Bridger and anything that was on its way was apparently scuppered or detained or something um, by the corrupt French government, you know, agents. Um, so all now seems hopeless. They're on the beach, they've got the ocean in front of them uh, and they see in the far, far distance up the road, a little you know, cloud of like cars coming, you know, it's the, either the French baddies or the Italian baddies or all of the baddies and there's nowhere for them to go. Um, even Charlie is at a loss as to what action to take. The remaining villains are screeching to a halt up the beach where they can't go on the sand, but they're on their way. Um, Albayati emerges from his vehicle and sees the group huddled down far below on the beach and his eyes find Charlie and they lock and he has real menace. Um, Charlie's in a lot of trouble. Um, and then a Dunkirk takes place with Mr. Bridges' telephone call en route paying off and a squad of tiny fishing boats piloted by local, honest, decent, hardworking English criminals appear on the horizon and they zoom up and our heroes all clamber onto a boat and sail to England, leaving the rotters stranded and fuming on the sand behind them. Abayati is just facing the, the uh, retreating boats and then the real police arrive behind them and then we cut and we see um, Belamondo is arrested in his offices um, and maybe the mob you know, um, as well being tipped off by the femme fatale who has changed. Um, so yeah, we also, um, so we guess they, they get across, they get to England, then uh, to a rousing self-preservation society retrieve uh, from cheers from a thousand patriotic flag-waving Englanders, our heroes drive to London from Dover uh, in waiting minis they drove past Buckingham Palace and Mr. Bridger salutes from his sidecar and they drive past Parliament and Charlie sticks two fingers up and lots of flags and Mr. Bridger has dropped outside his prison and he calmly approaches and they drive away and he calmly approaches the massive iron gate and rings the doorbell and it opens and a gawping guard uh, admits the gentleman. Mr. Bridger steps inside the main entrance of the prison to, and is met by an astounded governor um, and you know Mr Bridger very of course unruffled but slightly perturbed says to John and Monsieur the next time you allow one of your guests to depart you might want to pay closer attention to where exactly they are and then he just walks right past him as if he's not even there he walks regally back to his lovely cell to the cheers and waves and whistles of the fellow inmates welcome back Mr Bridger and all of that sort of thing um, he walks into a cell and he's met by his little, you know, his smithers, 
uh, there waiting for them. So we cut back to Charlie and Lorna and they drive home for presumably lots of sex. Um, Mr. Bridger cut back, um, Smithers, you know, so he says to Smithers, um, I trust everything has been smooth in my absence. And Smithers, I'm just going to call him, I said, well, there is one problem, Mr. Bridger. And Smithers waves a lackey in who's carrying one of the gold bars. And Smithers says, from the first batch to arrive, uh, some research has led to an unfortunate discovery, Mr. Bridger. And the lackey takes a cloth and douses it in liquid. And Mr. Bridger says to Smithers, petroleum. And Smithers said, yes, sir. And the rag is wiped vigorously on the back of the bar on, on a corner. We cut back to Charlie and Lorna. They reach Charlie's flat. They're all over each other with Charlie struggling to get the key in the lock. And he does, and they burst into the flat, tumbling in and crashing down on the sofa cushions on the floor. Their raucous behavior stops abruptly as both look up to find four huge and threatening looking men standing over them. And Charlie says, don't tell me I forgot to pay the rent on this place. And then the lead man says, with no subtitles, and I'm obviously going to mispronounce this, he says, you need to pay, all right. But what he actually says is, see, Marcin Rahalan Astogan. And all four men take out Lugas and point them at Charlie and Lorna, and they cock the guns and assume the firing pose. And Charlie says, Scheiser. And we cut back to Mr. Bridges' quarters, and the lackey finishes um, polishing the edge of the bar, and he hands it to Smithers, who hands his bar to Mr. Bridger who carefully places his reading glasses on his nose and examines the underside of the gold bar. And we see now revealed, very clearly engraved in the gold, is a swastika and a long beat. And all eyes are on Mr. Bridger. And he puts down the bar and he slowly takes up his glasses and he looks perturbed. And Mr. Bridger says in a nice close up, there's only one thing I detest more than the French. And that is the Germans. And then we move out of the cell in a slow but epic pullback, leaving the men in the cell and out across the length of the prison's main hall as the Self-Preservation Society kicks in and we roll credits and it's the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, three taglines. Uh, one, kind of obvious, don't worry lads, I've got a great idea. Um, second tagline. Gold bars, fast cars, groovy birds, frayed nerves. Um, and last one. <laughs> if they think their troubles ended with football, they know sweet F.A. And that's, that's the uh, that third tag. great for the top of the all-time tag. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to say very quickly, last thing, uh, the Italian job three comes out two years later in 73. It's got Nazis, it's got Albayati's final stand, it's got the US Mafia, who were sort of hinted at in the first film. We also learn that Lorna's father is a higher up in, in the US Mafia, and that's how she's connected. And the title is The American Gamble. So yeah. there you go. Nice. The French Affair, The American Gamble. These are good titles, Shepi. Bloody hell, man. That is intense. I mean, that's impossible to follow. So I might fake a heart attack in a minute, but we'll get to that. Um, I um, that was fucking amazing, man. I loved it. Loved it, it, loved a, it. It took on a life of its own. So I apologize <laughs> for the girth. There's so much to love. 
like I've written down a few things here, but just you got the lads in the first half there really well. Like, you know, just the crew, you really let into that. I love it. I didn't even know the bloody name of the drivers properly, you know, so it's just, it just love. I did research yeah. for that. Yeah. But Camp Freddy really pulled a thread on that character, man. And Lorna in the first half. I wanted to say as well on the watch, one of the things I really loved, and I wondered whether I'd remembered it right, so I didn't say it. But now that you've said what you've said, like, so Camp Freddy works for um, uh, Noel Coward. And, like, you know, yeah. there's this moment where he gets sent back to recruit Kane, having duffed him up. And it's like, oh, I don't know if that's such a good idea. But they don't even bother with the exposition of that. It's just like, no, they're in. He's in. Yeah. We're going to go and create uh, recruit Professor Peach. And they're sitting there with some cats. Like, amazing. <laughs> yeah. And they have that little adventure, the you know, Camp Freddy and Kane as well. And you and know the they go way back. recruiting the crew. It's amazing. It's yes. lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it but, is. yeah. But um, yeah, it's really happy. But anyway, Matt, I, I love that. that was brilliant, Sheps. Jesus. And I love the Nazi twist at the end. And yeah, all all cracking. Jeepers Christ. It's meant to be Chinese gold. Um, so that can somehow come into that. Like it yes. was meant to be Chinese, but they stole it from this compound. I pulled the Chinese it. thread a little in mine, yeah. Nice. But, well, uh, let's let's jump into it. Thank you very right. much for that. Oh, shit. That's, bloody that's... brilliant. That was amazing. Really amazing. Mine is, is slightly pithier, but that's okay. I think we'll just... I love pith. We'll, 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 we'll jump in. I live for pith. <laughs> so, The British Job, 1972. Uh, our man directing it. Um, I've forgotten his bloody name, and I just... Welcome to Collinson. Thanks. <laughs> uh, Michael Caine, back, obviously, Noel Coward, back. Well, not necessarily, obviously, I could have crashed the thing, I suppose, but yeah, Michael Caine, back, <laughs> Noel Coward, obviously, um, Altabani, as we've said from the trailer, Raph Ballone, that's the actor's name, and then Margaret Bly, as you had, Lorna, yeah, amazing Lorna in that movie, by the way, Shepi, and I love the connection to the US Mafia. Um, Freddie, we've got Tony Bethley back, we've got Harry Baird back as Big William, we've got Peach back, we've got James Hong in this as oh, called Hyung Chin. Um, so as we just mentioned, there's the four million that stole the, you know, the down payment from uh, the uh, to the Italian government from China for a Fiat car factory. Lots of weird car, you know, <laughs> advertising going on in these movies. Um, and then we've got two one other lady, Catherine Ross, is going to be in this as Princess Margaret. So, um, oh, wow, play Princess Margaret with an accent. So, anyway, that's amazing. Um, and then we've got uh, and we've got a, a lookalike as the Queen, probably, but actually, the more I think about it, the Queen's probably not in there. So, we open very similarly to the original Italian job with a Ferrari zipping around the Alps, and um, Altabani is behind the wheel. Um, and uh, the car behind him is a Fiat, and it's also keeping up. Um, and these two cars are not worried about the environment. They seem to be on the same team, but they're not bothering the carpool. <laughs> they, um, they, uh, they're just zipping along the Alps together as we get the credits, and then they both arrive at the side of the road, um, and um, we have Raffaello and his Alta Bunny gets out of the Ferrari, James Hong as Huang Chen gets out of the Fiat, and, um, and they're, they're both in shades of put cool AF, <laughs> so they're both <laughs> um, yeah. and a very battered mini is being hoisted up the mountain. No words are exchanged, they just get back in their cars and keep driving and the credits continue. 
and they go past two other sites where the other two minis are also being hoisted without stopping before they reach the next crew. And they pull over. The bus is at the bottom of the mountain, absolutely smashed to pieces. Um, and they've got some, some, you know, goons within the mafia have put like abseiling down the mountain towards the, the bus. And um, Altibani goes to the sort of the, the head goon who's running point on this particular sub-operation and just asks in Italian, you know, survivors. And the goon just shakes his head. And then um, Chen uh, also asks the Chinese but in fluent Italian for gold. And, um, and then the, the, the main goon says, the men are looking. And Altabani just says, Croker. And the goon looks down at the wreckage and then just says, if he's in there, he'll be dead. Like that. And then it just says 12 hours earlier. And then we get a rehash at the end of the movie. I love what you did with the voiceover in the clouds of the Alps. It's really nice, Sheffield. You're evocative. But anyway, rehash at the end of the movie. So I'll think of all the things I loved about yours, but do my but so they rehash at the end of the movie and, and we go all the way, you know, probably starting from when, you know, <laughs> the big Williams drove in too recklessly and um, and came all the way through to I've got an idea. And uh, and then Freddie just says, What, Charlie? And Kane just says, We wait. And then basically Kane just edges very slowly back up the truck from where he is and says, William, turn her back on. And um, William turns the engine on and he just says, get word to Bridger. Now, I'm playing a lot here, Sheppy, with license. So let's just assume they've got some kind of walkie-talkie arrangement that will get straight back to Bridger in, in England, something, some amazing satellite jump off. Um, but Big William just says, right you are, Charlie. And so we cut to the prison where everybody's still doing that. And it's amazing, by the way, that whole scene with Bridger, like, loving it and milking it. Yes. Bridger. I love it. It's amazing. It's a great yeah. football track. Anyway, um, and Bridger is still milking it, of course. And he's just, <laughs> we're literally picking up where we left off. He's about yeah. to enjoy his very first bite of breakfast, literally, like, you know, <laughs> loving it. Yeah. He's, he's even cracking the top of the hard-boiled egg and, like, everything. <laughs> and it's literally the first spoonful of the hard-boiled eggs about to go to his mouth with a, a, one of the prison guards, probably our man from Dad's Army, whispers in his ear, and his face immediately sours. And um, we cut back to the boys, the lads at the top of the cliff, looking very bored. They're all clumped together. One of them's like, I need a piss, Charlie. You know, and he goes, I told you to ditch the beers. And then, anyway, we, we see the fuel needle is amber. And, um, and Big William says, nearly there, Charlie. And then the bus splutters. And as it does splutter with the last sort of gasp of the fuel, it just slightly leans back onto the mountain. And Kane's like, okay, boys. Now, one at a time now, very slowly. So they, one at a time, they get off the bus. As they do, they go and find a rock from the side of the road and they substitute their weight with the rock until the next fella leaves, um, until it's basically just Kane left with a truckload of rocks at the, at the front. Um, and then um, we see the, uh, hear the thucking of two helicopters, thucking up, is that even a word? Of two helicopters approaching. Thucking is um, good. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and Kane's like, it's the cavalry lads, and um, mm. basically a, a chopper, one of the chopper uh, choppers hovers above, and um, sends a little hook down. Kane manages to hook the gold um, onto it, and the other chopper sends a hook down. So you've got basically the weight being um, distributed, and um, and basically Kane rolls out. So they take the um, the gold out, 
Kane rolls out of the van. It's just in time. I don't really know whether I've got the physics right at all, Sheffy. Sure, you know, I mean, that's okay. That's I mean, you're talking to Mr. Mr. T and his amazing friends, so I wouldn't worry too much about <laughs> it if I um, But the, the, the basic thing is the choppers leave with the gold. Um, Kane's rolled out of the van in time. The van, obviously, the bus crashes at the bottom of the, the mountain. Um, and um, and the boys start to walk to Switzerland. And Kane's like, cheer up, lads. We're only two days from Geneva. And then one of the boys is like, anyone know what the score was? You know, from the game. <laughs> anyway, we don't even. I love how much yours was like. Then get the boys back with the goal. They're going to be. This is like forget all of that, Chevy. This is like <laughs> a, another funeral. And we cut to another funeral. And um, and one of the policemen says to um, <laughs> one of the policemen says to Bridger, "You seem to have a lot of aunties, Mister Bridger." Like that, and, uh, and Mister Bridger just gives him a withering stare. But really, he's <laughs> thinking for those uh, uh, shoulders of giants fans who were with us last week, and not as many aunties as Ellen Griswold. Come on, well, yeah. there you go. We're back. Um, anyway, Croker. But they die mind. as fast. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> um, <laughs> Croker arrives at the funeral with Lorna. Um, he's in a black suit, rocking the black suit. Um, so he's being respectful, but he's being very cocksure as well. He's man of the hour, you know, they've got the gold, you know. He's expecting his share, he's expecting a massive yeah. pat on the back, but Bridger isn't best pleased when he arrives at the funeral. And Bridger's word to Kane, uh, to Kane I'm gonna do the Kane Croker thing. Yeah. But Bridger's word to Kane is, you know, essentially, it was messy, Croker. You lost a man, Peach. You know, and um, and he continues with it like we have a man on the inside, Crocker, and the Italians are not going to sit on this. They're planning revenge, and there'll be no payment until this is settled once and for all. And Kane is sort of having to tuck his cigar back into his top pocket here. He's not very happy. Um, so they go into the wake of the funeral, which is essentially a side room with a projector, and we're going to get another ridiculous black and white ex expository film here. And we literally watch the briefing of the mafia because <laughs> they've got the oh, love it. And, um, and, and we're through the looking glass. It's so silly. And we've got Altabani here saying, you know, we're going to strike them at the heart of what they stand for self preservation. And, uh, oh, and, and, <laughs> and the Italians have acquired detailed blueprint, blueprints of the Tower of London. And um, and essentially, Altabani is doing the dictating. Chin is in the meeting as well. We see the crown jewels, um, and and basically the, um, the 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 real crown jewels are kept in the Tower of London, as we all know. Um, but the Queen apparently keeps replicas in Buckingham Palace for the tourists. And um, and basically, Bridger says to Croker, "We can't have Her Majesty's, uh, you know, crown jewels being taken as as a revenge strike. So we want you to swap them over, Croker. We need you to get into Buckingham Palace and swap over the fake jewels of Tara London, undetected naturally." And Croker's like, "How long we got?" And he goes, "Well, we believe they're planning to target the British Grand Prix in two weeks as cover for some of their best drivers to be in the country without any visa restrictions or suspicion." And um, then we cut to an Italian police station. Altabani interrupts an interrogation of Professor Peach um, and starts to question himself. Lots of eye rolling from Benny Hill, I've put, you know, culminating <laughs> in uh, Altabani pushing a picture across the table of Kane at the airport with Lorna and just saying, who is this woman? You know, we come back to, um, to, to England 
we've got Kane uh, and Lorna at night properly in their stealth um, black kind of ninja gear or whatever, you know, to break into the Buckingham Palace under the cover of night. And um, and they do so. And this is this is very like 70s, and there's not much Mission Impossible technical wizardry here, Sheppy. They they manage a few grappling hooks and some shenanigans and you know all this. Yeah. Stuff. Um, they so, pass like a 10-year-old Hudson Hawk and Danny Aiello. Who could use to it? They they so they're skulking around the corridors of Buckingham Palace in their cat burglar gear. Perhaps I've put Kane steals a cheeky canopy from a discarded platter or something. But they split up to check the rooms and they know the jewels are kept in a room on the east wing. And um, so Kane is trying different doors, and Lorna's trying different doors. Kane tries one door and winds up in a very frisky Princess Margaret's room. She seems completely at ease with the situation of a handsome cat burglar arriving with her. Um, but we get a uh, <laughs> we get a classic line from Kane here, which is a not tonight, princess. Your sister needs me more. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, and then we've got Lorna finds the jewels um, and they take them to the, so they, they get a little sack or whatever, and they take the crown jewels to the Tower of London. Um, and this is just a pure Lorna and Kane mission, this. Um, Kane distracts some beefeater guard whilst Lorna sneaks into the, the tower um, with, I put with some 70s laser tomfoolery and a switch. Um, and I've put this is all too easy in a way that it would be in the 70s, but that's okay. And I've just said, crucially, Kane doesn't see the full switch happen. He's outside, you know, distracting whatever. Lorna does the job. Kane takes the jewels back to the palace. Um, Lord leaves Lorna for a moment, bumps into Margaret again. Um, mm. And perhaps, you know, this time has his wicked way. And I was just mm. thinking, like, you know, that line reading of... Um, the, uh, the 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 moment where he's got all the ladies and he wants everything, you know. I think <laughs> it's the moment where he just you just hear him say, "Your Majesty," in exactly <laughs> the same like line. Um, and um, so anyway, he he has his wicked way with Princess Margaret, and then because of the sexual <laughs> politics of the era, he then meets Lorna in the same night in a seventies nightclub as well. So that you know, the, I put here the sexual politics are absolutely on point, and. Um, and he says, oh, I've had a royal flush. Oh, Sheppy, amazing. <laughs> um, he's in the nightclub and he says to Lorna, after all this is over, I want to make an honest woman of you, Lorna. And uh, she's like, oh, Charlie. You know? Anyway, so um, then... Right in the crown jewels. <laughs> um, there's some kind of, uh, I've put here some kind of ridiculous briefing of the crew at Silverstone, I've put... Um, where uh, a few of them work, I guess, given they're very mechanically minded. So maybe there will be a few of them working there. Um, and anyway, you know, Kane is giving them a brief, the boys a briefing, much like he does in the first one. He's like, the money is coming. We've just got to be patient, fellas. The job's just got, we've, we've done our bit sort of thing, you know. Um, and outside the briefing, of course, they run into Altabani and Chin, who were there with the Italian Ferrari team or whatever, you know. And, um, and there's a tense standoff between them where uh, Kane's able to say, you you know, you ruined my motor, but we'll be a bit more courteous of yours. And, uh, and then Altapani retorts, well, you stole our gold, Mr. Croker. When this is settled, you're a dead man. And, uh, and Kane's like, well, we'll have to see about that, won't we? And uh, anyway, <laughs> so we get to the big day 
um, the Formula One day, um, expectations of a big raid, and, and we are ready, you know, everybody's prepared and ready for the Italians to actually raid. Um, and, um, and, and then we get the, the Italian prep moment from the trailer where, you know, Altapan is briefing the team and, and gives it the, you know, remember they drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, and, you know, because they don't really need to do anything necessarily, the boys at this point, um, you know, they're just waiting for the Italians to think they've got the, the crown jewels from Tower London. Um, Kane is very, you know, Jack the Lads, cheeky, he pops around to Lorna's flat, he's looking all suited and booted, maybe to take the silver stone, who knows. Um, only when he gets to Lorna's flat, there's water on the floor in the hallway. Um, and he heads to the bathroom where she's in a bad way in the tub, like basically oh. been stabbed or something, but not quite dead, oh, no. dead door, you know. And she's like, I'm sorry, Charlie. And then she dies and we get a pure bit of cane acting here. I've just been oh, devastated oh, at losing her and at the betrayal. Um, and I was thinking, is this too far? But then, you know, it's a pretty full on death at the beginning of the Italian job. So I think, you know, but this is becomes the Empire Strikes Back a bit, Sheppard. Yeah, right. Oh, I was shocked. Amazing. Shocked <laughs> um, in a good way. And it basically means, of course, Altabani from the moment of Professor Peach, he gets to Lorna and he's got to Lorna and there was no switch. And Lorna left the originals in Tower Bridge. Um, so um, Bridger is briefed of this uh, position in prison. I assume Kane gets on the blowout to him or something. Um, and he just says, give him everything he needs. And But he's visibly shaken as he retires to his, his cell, Bridger, and he looks up at uh, Elizabeth and he just says, forgive me, mom. And then um, we get the, um, the Italians with the Chinese steal the crown jewels from Tower Bridge in an awesome heist. I've just put them in, you know, a bit of a cop out, but essentially I've just, um, they, they create their own set of commotion and traffic chaos around Tower Hill and London Bridge area. Um, Kane is heading to the area um, with uh, Freddie um, and they get stuck at London Bridge because of, of the traffic and they commandeer a bus, um, a route master bus, um, just because the bus lane's still free. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I like to think this is not done under duress. I've, uh, I've basically said that, um, you know, where have I got it? I've seen to, because I copied and pasted a few things here, but essentially it's not under duress. They know the bus driver. Like, you know I mean? It's like, all right, Charlie, you know, yeah, I'll just yeah. go for a minute. You know, it's one of those. Scoop drove a Leon. <laughs> so uh, and let's just say that they get the rid of the passengers, maybe. I don't think we turn this into speed or anything. But uh, but anyway, they, they bus, uh, they take the bus lane to Tower Hill, but they're too late as they're approaching. They see a Ferrari pulling away. And Kane's like, there, Freddie. So um, it's Altabani and another driver, Anonymous, you know, maybe a Formula One racing superstar from the days making a cameo. Mm. And, and they have a chase around the square mile where the traffic is slightly leveling this so that the bus does, can just about keep up with the Ferrari. Um, it goes all around, you know, uh, the square mile, the docks, etc., and then comes back. I've put tight corners, tricky angles, all the way back to Tower Bridge. And as they're approaching Tower Bridge, the barriers are coming down for the bridge and the Ferrari manages to skirt through the barriers going up over the pavement, around the traffic, just through the barrier as it clicks down and um, and shoots across basically an empty tower bridge. And Kane says, they're only going to go and bloody pull the drawers up. <laughs> and the bridge raises just after the Ferrari goes off it. And, um, and Kane says, floor it, Freddie. 
And um, so they also go over the pavement a bit in the route master and the bridge is raising and we get the money shot moment from um, the sequel where they jump the tower bridge in the old route master bus um, and manage to just about get over it in, in ridiculous gravity defying yeah. um, stunt. But they do it for real, you know, they must have to cannon it or something, and it's obviously not cane inside it. Anyway, that's <laughs> it. Um, and then they've, uh... how interesting that we both did that. Because yeah. you said, oh, I think we might be similar, and I don't think we were. But <laughs> apart from that, unless that was what you were talking about originally, oh, I, I bet we you... both used <laughs> I, you've got to have a stunt like that, and I, th I think we both might do it. Um, and uh, just to be clear, they definitely don't do a golden gun. Maybe when it yeah. lands, it's like the self-preservation society kicks in again a bit like yours too. So anyway, nice. um, so they've lost a lot of ground though um, in, in trying to pull that off. And it looks like um, the uh, Altabani's going to get away um, and um, and he turns a corner and the boys in blue are waiting for him and there's a row of police cars and um and Altabani gets out of the car concedes you know kane and freddie catch up um but it turns out that Altabani's trunk is empty mm. and um and Altabani and his driver have been a big decoy and uh and then we we basically then cut to um chen and he's in some remote like countryside road and uh, and he exchanges the sack of uh, crown jewels with the gentleman we can't see it's it's like a crane shot you know what i mean it's from a distance um a gentleman with a black cap who takes the um the crown jewels puts them in the back of uh, his, his car let's just say i don't know what car it doesn't matter um and i was going to say make a car but it would give away a twist that's coming in a minute um so uh, he, this guy with a flat cap puts the the uh the crown jewels in his trunk and drives away. We cut back to um, to to Kane as Croker with Altabani and the police. And um, Kane says to Altabani, "If you haven't got them, who has? Who's got the jewels?" And Altabani just goes, "I don't know, Mister Croker. I'm but an Italian on holiday for the I put for the Formula Uno, but you know I'm, I'm Italian on holiday for the for the Grand Prix, you know. And uh, you have to ask yourself, who hates the English even more than the Italians to do such a thing?" And then we basically cut to our man in the flat cap. Um, is let's just say there's some really obvious Scottish chicanery around this car. Maybe it's a little air freshener or something, or whatever. But the bottom line is, it's the Scottish who hate the English even more. And we have a beaming Sean Connery in a flat cap driving away with the crown jewels. And we wow. cut. That's the end. Of the movie. Wow. So uh, huge. Third one will be. A uh, a Kane versus Connery face off. Oh god, that would be amazing. <laughs> what could the title be? Kane versus Connery. Colon. <laughs> Dawn of. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. License to kill. And by the that's way, that's but it does mean that like it becomes another play on the word of the British job, if you know what I mean. It's like an inside job within Britain as well, which is quite nice. But what a twist. <laughs> would you believe I, I will say, if I told you yes. I woke up this morning at 4am Sheppy and I didn't have Sean Connery and I didn't have you're only going to pull the bloody drawbridge up or drawbridge. Oh, wow. I thought both of those came to me overnight. Those, there you go I mean that 
doesn't surprise me because that's pure essence. That's something that you can't plan. You can't sit down with your chewed pencil and come up with that. That's going to like ignite from the wings of an angel. So yeah, good stuff. Amazing. And brilliant. Uh, the British did you, The British job. Wonderful. Did you think to yourself that there would be the third one? Um, like, I think there has to be, doesn't there? Yeah, because this yeah. is a pretty Empire Strikes Back. The villains have the upper hand yeah. here, you know. I don't know what happens yeah. yet, but maybe we can sog ourselves in the future for both of us. That'd be nice because I want to see yours too. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, right. Let me just go to the point. I'm loving it. I'm not sure if the film could survive the death of Lorna at that point. Once they start, wow. you know, maybe is she just a bit beaten up? You know, that sounds like a bad thing to say no, as well. Right. That's fair. That's fair, Sheppy. That's fair. I'm not sure people are going to be cheering the bus jump. You know, I mean, I'll that's still be so sobbing. <laughs> not Lorna. Um, You're right. She probably yeah. does. She probably does need to still be alive. It needs to. Yeah, that's true. That's a good edit, I think. I'm bloody loving it. The whole thing. Anne Connery, 1972, yeah. 1971. 72. Yeah. Uh, smiling, smiling. They never, like, we, we were much more of a cohesive Britain in those days. Like, I don't feel like I'd really want to lean into the fact the Scottish hate us at that point in time, maybe. I don't know. Like, but we don't see. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe, like, you know, the freedom comes at a price. I don't know. Is that referencing a film that hasn't happened yet? Uh, I'm all for it because I thought it was going to be the French. Um, but but no, having having the Scottish angle is a nice twist. I like it. I say let's go for it. And Connery would do it because um, he's friends with Kane. He wasn't doing yeah. This is alternative universe, but he's lightened up. The Hill won him an Oscar or something in this version. He's made Marnie too. T O O Marnie's um, and money Marnie for nothing. He's made all of these Marnie films. And so he's up for being in this like light comedy with, with Kane. And he agrees to do the cameo at the end. He says, I remember I'm going to make the fucking third one. And then he does, because he's like, oh no, Hitchcock doesn't want to make any more Marnie films. I need to earn my Marnie somewhere else. So he does, uh, yeah, yeah the, the Scottish affair. <laughs> the Scottish, the Highland fling. Oh yeah, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> I'm loving it. So wonderful, Jimmy. Right, Chef. Wonderful. You know what? So I guess all that remains then on the agenda is for me to set something for next time. And I have been wringing my hands a wee bit, Chefs, on this. Thank you, by the way, for suggesting the Italian job. That was a great suggestion. Honestly, when you first said it, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, okay. I'll rewatch. But no, it is at least four stars, I think, in yeah. the movie. And, uh, so yeah, so that's happy. I've been very happy doing this one. Um, but yes, okay, next time, chefs. I, I listen. I'll tell you now. I've, I've got. We have to manufacture it so that I get to do the Christmas one, whatever that looks like. We could probably okay. do Christmas ones, but I've sort of a that's brilliant good. one for Christmas. So we'll, we'll we'll save that for six months. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this is not very helpful for now. But I will say <laughs> that 
you young man need to somehow get yourself to a cinema and watch Top Gun Maverick because it is a treat and I'm, I'm not overstating that fact whether you you know think it's five stars or not it doesn't matter I don't know that I do but it is a treat and it is an event is now. it as good as event. cocktails and dream no but very little <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so there's no brian brown i need to tell you now um but i think um on that sort of bubble though i thought actually let's revisit a tom cruise film that doesn't necessarily need a sequel at all it's got a bow on it or does it but i would like sheppy a uh, another tom cruise revisit and i would like you to give me a sequel to jerry Maguire, please oh, buddy. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that it that needs is... a sequel, but maybe it needs a sequel because I'd like to see Tom Cruise do that kind of role again. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, so anyway. There this you one go. Booking Tom at the moment. Let's try and bag him his Oscar, shall we, with a Joe McGuire sequel. It's cruise control. Um, <laughs> I'm loving it. You need to necessarily be in. I mean, it's hard to resist it, but let's just say, you know, it can be in the universe. Mickey returns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can tell you totally you, you could go a different route. I'm happy wherever your brain goes with it, Sheppy. You could go with was it Ron something or other the the guy who's the American footballer? You could do his next chapter with a cameo right. cruise or whatever you want to do. Do anything you like in the universe. But um, oh, I want Nicky, McCauley Culkin, and Aled Jones. And they're like, we, it's all gone wrong for us. We used to be adorable. <laughs> Uh, that's my sequel right there. There it is. Um, what were you so saying? the Christmas Sorry. one then is going to be. <laughs> you've done it. Um, yeah. So, oh, I was just going to say, I would actually like to stipulate that Cameron Crowe has to come back and direct it. That's the only Fair other. Fair play. I'm I want sure. Crowe in my life. So yeah. Custody crowed. <laughs> But you can, you, if, if someone else pops in and you think, no, I have to have that director, that's fine. He can executive produce or whatever he needs to do, but he needs to, he needs to get some dollars and some credit and an influence on the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, Jimmy. I'm very excited by that. Good stuff. So uh, I've had a lovely time. How on earth do we wrap this up? Uh, do we end it on a cliffhanger? Do we say, oh, I know, I've got. I know exactly how to finish it. I've got a great idea. Self-preservation society. This is the self-preservation society.